My name is Danny. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be preaching God's Word this morning. But uh, before we do that, if, you are, if you've been with us for the past three weeks, uh, you've been noticing that as a pastoral staff, we've been trying to talk a little bit more about ourselves so that, especially if you're new, you can get to know us a little bit better. So I'm going to continue that pattern and talk a little bit about me before I talk about the important stuff. So uh, photo illustrations. Uh, this is me and my wife, Unji. Um, We've been married for three years now. We met in college, so for those of you who are uh, in college. Um, behind us right there, this is from July this year, behind us is the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus walked on that. It's pretty cool, right? Like literally, right? He walked on that. Uh, this was in our vacation that we uh, took this past summer. Um, we really did meet in college. We started dating when I was a senior. Uh, dated for a number of years, I think three or four, and then we're now happily married, uh, living here in Boston. Uh, we do have one child. She came out a little strange. Um, <laughs> when the blonde hair happened, I was a little, uh, I was a little weird, but um, she's just the only one at home. I, we do get a lot of questions about, uh, like, oh, when are you going to have your second? And oftentimes I say, uh, it's so just to put that question to rest, it's probably not going to be for at least two, three years maybe or so. So uh, just in case you're curious, that's something to know. Um, two things that are very important in my life are my hobbies. Uh, first is that I spend a lot of time outside fishing. Uh, this is me in the pitch darkness. I could die at any moment because <laughs> I'm often on slippery rocks and waves are crashing on me and I'm all by myself. Luckily, a stranger was walking by and I was like, hey, can you take a picture of me, which is how I got this photo. Uh, so every summer, um, I go at least, we're from May to October, at least once a week I'm somewhere getting splashed on and trying to pray that God will send me a fishy friend. Uh, the other thing important in my life is that I also work part-time at a CrossFit gym as a trainer. Uh, this is me uh, with a view of some of my friends and clients who, uh, this was a 7 p.m. class that I ran in, um, in Mission Hill. Uh, and so these are the two things that are really important in my life that I like to do for fun. So if I'm not with you or at Cornerstone, I'm either doing one of those two things. Um, yeah. Other than that, uh, something that might be, I don't know, unique or important is that, so I grew up here all my life. I was born in Lowell, Massachusetts. Uh, I grew up in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. Yep, my brother. Um, we went, I went to high school there. I went to college at University of Massachusetts Amherst. Then, yep, uh-huh, my other brother. And then I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, my third brother. Uh, and then I'm now here in Boston. So I've been here all my life. My wife has been here since uh, high, freshman year of high school. So both of us consider Boston to really be our home. Uh, we love it here, and uh, we hope that you love it here as well. All right, so that's enough about me. Um, let me pray for us real quickly, and then we'll jump into the third sermon in our series of our mission and vision. God, uh, everything that we sang, and as our brother Myung prayed for us, and as Pastor Bill prayed for us, we were just, uh, just delighted and overly grateful for the work of Jesus Christ that warmly welcomes and embraces us into this place, and to be, to be before you, and to have a relationship with you. And what we want to accomplish, first and foremost at this time, is for you to be made bigger, greater, awesomer, if that's a word, and just praised. 
Um, and we want to strengthen our bond and our relationship with you, secondly. We want to know, how can I follow you closer? How can I be more obedient to your commands? How can I honor and bless you, God, by the way that I live my life? And that's really what we're trying to figure out as a church. And that's what we want to accomplish. And as a church, we can't do that if every individual doesn't buy in. And the individuals have difficulty buying if the church doesn't buy in. And so together as a family and a people of God, we want to do that. So help us to do that by enlightening us with your word and your word alone. Would it be your word alone, O oh God, not any person or man's words, but yours? So we thank you and we commit this time to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this past Monday, uh, just or about a week ago, was a very important day for this country, right? You know what I'm talking about? Monday Night Football, right? No, the, the debate. Uh, uh, the first of the presidential debates of there's going to be three more that are coming up and hopefully you marked it on your calendars um, between our two presidential candidates uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and right now we are in the thick of things in the race I mean they're they're the two candidates they've already been established now they're debating uh, ele- uh, election day is what a month away uh, it's coming up very soon and some way that we'll all, I'm sure, be able to notice that is there's lots of campaigns that start pushing, pushing, pushing every person to go out and to vote. So uh, there are lots of YouTube and like um, social media like Instagram and Twitter, Facebook campaigns. Uh, these uh, organizations hire celebrities to stand in front of a camera and be like, go out there and do your American duty. Uh, something that while I had already written this portion of the sermon or as an introduction and I got a text from vote.org. They somehow spam us now. I don't know how they got our phone number, but even they're paying for people to be texting people about vote, vote, vote. Now, I don't know what the percentage of us in this room are who will actually go to the polls in November, um, but it's fairly, I can be confident to say that a lot of us won't, and millions upon millions of Americans in in this world, or in this country, choose not to. And You know, there's usually maybe a number of reasons why we don't, but I think it comes down to two major reasons why people usually don't vote. The first is you feel like your vote doesn't matter. There are literally millions of people who are going to go to the polls, and if the vote comes down to millions or thousands, how is my one little circle in the little ballot box really going to matter? So we kind of disassociate or separate ourselves from any importance in, in what we have to say, and so what's the point of going to the polls? Secondly, if this might be you of your reason, if you choose not to vote, or other, not just us in here, but other people around the country, is if we feel like, oh, well, I'm not well-versed enough in politics. I haven't studied enough. I haven't read up on the candidates and their views enough. I don't even know my own views enough. Who do I declare with? Uh, I'm not a politician. I'm, I, just, I just don't know enough. And so I would feel a little bit unwise to choose somebody when I don't really know what I'm choosing. Usually I would give a confident guess that those are the two major reasons why people choose not to vote. Now, I'm not going to go into politics here, but I think we could all agree that's probably not the best attitude for us to have, and we should. Those things shouldn't keep us there. But instead of talking politics, I want to talk church. And I think that we actually have the two very similar excuses or roadblocks or stumbling blocks, speed bumps, things that keep us from doing works of compassion, of mercy, and of justice, what we call CMJ here at Cornerstone. There's so many world issues. People are 
like getting, communities are getting torn apart by wars, there's, there's a refugee crisis, there's malnutrition, so many places in the world, lack of access to clean water, medical care, people who need advocacy, people stuck in slavery, systematic problems like racism and nations that are needing development, and there's all these tons of things going on, and it can be easy for us to disattach ourselves and think, well, what is my couple dollars or what is my two hours volunteering on a Saturday afternoon really going to do? Do I really need to do that? Or, like we think, oh, voting is for the people who are well-versed in politics, it's easy for me to think, oh, well, it's for the social workers. It's for the people who work for nonprofits. It's for the pastors to do that work. Or the devout religious folk. Or, get this, I think all of us have said this in our lives, it's for the rich people. It's the rich people's job to go and help and do works of compassion, mercy, and justice in this world. The thing is, it is all of our responsibility. And while I'm drawing this parallel between voting in this democracy and CMJ, the clear difference, friends, there is the parallel, I hope you see that, but the clear difference is this. One, it's democracy, and the other is monarchy. There's a complete difference, right? Right? In Jesus' kingdom, in this monarchy under King Jesus, he is in charge in every way, but he is perfect in every way. His rule is fair, loving, and just in every which way. And when all of his citizens, when we all abide by his command, everyone ends up winning. We all win. We all get blessed as his kingdom gets furthered. So what we're going to do is we're going to explore a passage from the book of James in talking about the third line of our mission statement, that we as a church want to be a church that engages in compassionate justice in this world. And it's all of our responsibility. So let's see what the scriptures tell us. We're going to be reading from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, a very popular passage which I'm sure many of us have read and studied and, and listened to before. Um, So you can open your Bibles, or I'm going to put it on the screen as well. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works, but show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, 
So also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we have one of the most popular passages in James and maybe even all the, the whole Bible. Um, and it, it doesn't take much explanation to get to what his point is. This is very, uh, in terms of preaching, this is like a beautiful passage. There's a clear beginning and end. There's repetition of his main point. There is logic. There's even emotion. He, he goes all out. And it's pretty clear, or crystal clear, I would say, what James wants us to get as a church is that faith without works is dead. So much so that he does the magic number of three times. He repeats it in, in slightly different ways. In 17, he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In verse 20, he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And he bookends it beautifully at the end or the last verse of this passage in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So not only does he repeat his message over and over, but we almost kind of get a feel for his emotions, which is pretty cool. James seems to be a bit angsty, a bit, a bit frustrated, because scholars assume that what he's doing is he's combating this poor attitude that's been happening in his community, where people are defining faith as merely a verbal profession. So it's merely about what you say, and that counts all of a sudden. And so he's getting riled up, and he's saying, no, that is not the case. Faith is not just what you say, it's what you do. Your faith is shown genuine by your works, by how you live your life. Now, as an aside, I don't want to spend too much time here. A lot of people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, whatever happened to you, like, that works righteousness is not a thing. So, so let me just pause here for a moment just to be really clear is that what James is not saying, he's not saying that doing works is what saves you. There is 100% agreement with the Apostle Paul. Uh, I mean, even like Myung read out of Romans this morning, that genuine faith is show, or excuse me, that we are saved by grace through faith and faith alone. That is clear, so let's establish that. But what he is showing and what he is arguing is that genuine faith is shown through good works, If James were to do an illustration, he'd say, if you are a living body, you breathe, don't you? Do you set an alarm? Remember to breathe. Do you, like, have to consciously? (sighs) No, you just breathe because you're living. In the same way, he would say, if there is living, genuine faith inside of you, you will do good works. Breathing is not added to the actions of a living body in the way that good works are not added to one who has genuine and legitimate faith. Our faith is given legitimacy through our good works. And so he uses a prime example to support his thesis. Verse 15 and 16 through 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We see a little bit more of his emotions as he continues in verse 19. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's always interesting to me when biblical authors start getting a little bit sarcastic. He's like trolling us in a little bit. As we read that passage in in sarcasm, he's like, oh, good job. You believe in God? Demons do too. Yeah, good job, right? Like, and the thing is that they shudder. So James is like, well, okay, like good job. He's like trolling us a bit. And then he's like, well, at least you see the outward effects of their faith, don't you? 
A demon believes, and if you were to look at one, if that one could be physically present, you'd be able to see through their shuddering that they have faith and they tremble. So the question for the church is, do our works and our lifestyle show the effects of our faith? As onlookers look at us and view us without being able to x-ray glasses through into our hearts, would they be able to see genuine, sincere faith in Jesus Christ? There are different times and seasons of the year for different organizations and businesses where uh, they get busier. You know, some places start hiring seasonal employees where they need to stock up an inventory when, when, when things get crazy. And some examples that I thought of was uh, flower shops and places that sell Hallmark cards. They get super, super busy. Their season is May and June. There's commencements. There's high school uh, undergrad and graduate commencements all happen in May and June. There's senior prom, right? Some of you, that wasn't that long ago where you get the, the flower guy and the flower guy. You know, what is this called? Corsage. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so flower shops get busy because of that. And Mother's Day and Father's Day is also May and June. So lots and lots of flowers being sold, lots and lots of cards being sold. Restaurants that sell wings and pizza. Super Bowl Sunday in February. Stock up big time, extra employees, lots of cars and deliveries. Shopping malls, it's kind of obvious from Black Friday, so after Thanksgiving on through Christmas Eve. These places all get busier in particular seasons. Cornerstone has one now, <laughs> September, October. You're all here and it's busy. We get new people shuffling in and out. But the Universal Church, capital C, we have one too. We're included in that, but not just us. The holidays, particularly Easter, sometimes Christmas, where churches start getting packed, their pews get filled, auditorium seats get taken up, and where we get a little bit busier. I'm sure many of us have friends or coworkers, maybe even family members, roommates, who we would define, or we kind of think of them as holiday Christians, right? Because they only show up on the holidays. If you were to ask them personally, oh, like, do you have any religious or faith background? They say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And maybe that even says Christian on their, on their like, Facebook or, on, I don't know, on, online profiles or whatever. But you've kind of never really seen the effects of their faith in real life. They show up on Easter, Christmas, maybe Christmas Eve or Good Friday. But other than their attendance, we don't really see the effects of their faith. And what we, I mean... Holiday Christian is a term, but another term that we use is nominal Christianity. Christians just by name, just by their profession. They don't really seem to have faith living inside of them. As I was studying this passage and trying to get into the brain, into the head of James, I was thinking nominal Christianity, holiday Christianity. And the thing is, I think, I came to this conclusion that I think we're a little bit too narrow versus what James would think of. Because when I think about holiday Christianity, I'm thinking purely attendance. Maybe you are too. When we think of those friends or family members, we just think about when they do or they don't show up at church, typically. But I think James would be like, no, there's a lot more to this whole holiday Christianity thing than just showing up on a Sunday morning or not showing up. We just tend to hinge those identification markers of other people based upon attendance, but I think it goes beyond. So it begs the question, do we ever act holiday-y or nominal ever? When I look at this verse, or these verses, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things need for the body, what good is that? 
I realize there are millions of Christians around the world who may be perfect in their church attendance, but who are just as holiday Christian when it comes to this. We might be perfect in our attendance, but don't we many times just say, go in peace? Malls get really busy in Christmas time all of a sudden, but so does the church. And so I wonder if we are asking ourselves, if we ask ourselves and look critically at ourselves to look at what James is saying and even what other parts of Scripture are saying, the pressing question as holiday, as holiday shopping, as malls and, and stores and Amazon.com, traffic decreases once the holidays pass. Does the church's work of compassion decrease at the same time? And I think the answer is yes. Are we absent for most of the rest of the year? Because we do bump up during the holidays, don't we? We get more generous when Christmas comes around. We show up to volunteering more and Thanksgiving drives and donating turkeys to families that are in need. And then as the shopping decreases, it's kind of like we dwindle as well. Maybe we have the capacity to be holiday Christians if we're not paying attention. Because it's not just about the talk, it's about our deeds. In John, the Apostle John shares the same sentiment as James. I'm not going to project it, just listen. He writes in 1 John 3, starting in verses 17 through 18. 1 John 3, 17, 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Church, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So James continues. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when, re- when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So James is passionately arguing his point. And like I mentioned, he does a perfect job. He gets emotional, he gets logical, and then he uses the Bible to support his own points. He talks about Father Abraham. And if you are a Jew and somebody says Abraham, you're like, okay, you win. The argument's over. It's Abraham. He's the father. He's the beginning of it all, right? And Rahab, Matthew shows us in the beginning of the New Testament that Rahab is in the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. He's the important people. The Bible, frankly, doesn't talk a lot about what they said and what they, what they were thinking all the time, but it talks, sure, a lot about what they did and these great displays of faith where God says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your only son. And he goes, okay. And he goes up and he does it, or he, he was about to do it. And where Rahab shows her great faith by helping the spies in Joshua. So he's trying to get a, like, through to us due to his original audience and to the church today, true faith can be seen in the fruit of our lives. And the thing is, this whole, like, speech uh, without actions, it's not just a Christian concept, is it? Think about where uh, 
you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk comes from. Or put your money where your mouth is. These are all the same sentiments, right? The same thoughts. And this is our biblical call directly from the word of God to do that. Almost always, when it comes to conversations and news about the NFL, uh, it's about, you know, the sport, obviously. And I'd like to apologize for every male pastor who comes up and uses all sports illustrations to the ladies in the house. But recently, recently, a big story has come up that has nothing to do with the rules and whether you know what's going on in the field. Colin Kaepernick, a quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers, he sparked a media frenzy of attention. So whether you care about football or not, I assume that you've heard this story if you're following the news. Because he's been protesting. And what he's been protesting is his desire to see change in racism, in oppression against black males in this country, uh, and just, just injustice. And the way that he's been doing that as pictured on the screen and as there's been like a million pictures constantly posted of is him kneeling while the national anthem is being sung before the football games begin. And so every time there's an, he's at a game, which is every Sunday or Monday once in a while, the national anthem will start, and he takes a knee, and he refuses to stand. This is caught on in a lot of ways, obviously sparking media frenzy, but it's also caught on with a lot of other football players and other athletes. So some have been joining him in kneeling, who agree, as his teammate did right here, and others have said, well, we don't want to kneel, we don't want to go that far, but we're going to raise a fist high in the air, and it's spread across the NFL, but it's even spread among other sports. This is the USA women's soccer team, which is super popular. The thing is, there has, as I'm sure if you, if you haven't been following, you can imagine a lot, a lot of feedback. It's been like chaos. So feedback on the, yeah, more power to him. This is what makes America great. We have the freedom in this democracy to, to protest legally when where there is injustice, and he should have every right to fight against that. And then we've had the complete other side, where Colin Kaepernick said recently in an interview that he can't count the number of death threats he's received. Because, hey, there's always something bad about this country. It's not going to be perfect, but you don't disrespect the country. And lots of things in between. The NFL and the news media have been interviewing coaches and people in the football world, uh, veterans, people who are in our military services right now to get their opinions, people in government, and everybody's been talking, talking, talking about whether this is okay to do for Colin Kaepernick to take a knee. Just like I said I didn't want to talk about politics, I don't want to talk about whether I agree with what he's doing or not, but I do have one strong opinion about what he's doing. His protest has the power to make a major, major impact on community, right? And to produce great change. But I also think very strongly, I believe this very strongly, that his protest has just as much power and just as much potential to do absolutely nothing. Minus get a lot of media attention. And then once the cameras go away and there's a more sexy story to follow, it's gone. I think there's equal potential He can kneel all he wants for the rest of his career. He can get every other player to kneel at an NFL games and then all the U.S. women's soccer and then NBA and MLB and NHL and blah, blah, blah. And everyone can start kneeling and everyone can start protesting with their knees. But until it takes some sort of action, it's just kneeling. So my questions are, will his protest spark action? 
Will his protest that's bringing more light to the issues actually be a part of ending systematic racism in our country? Will it aid in, on the flip side, bringing racial reconciliation in our country? Will it end police brutality on black men? Or will it just be a gesture by another rich celebrity who has a platform? That's my question. Uh, yeah, we can debate whether it's okay for him to kneel or not, but what I want to know is whether black men are going to stop getting shot by police because he started this. The power of a protest is in its ability to be a powerful spark, a catalyst that sets something ablaze. But if there's no kindling, if there's no wood there to actually for that spark to matter, it's, it doesn't change the world. So my message to Colin Kaepernick, because... You know, he's listening to the Cornerstone Boston podcast. Colin, my boy, he's my fourth boy. Uh, Your protest, this is what I would say to him, of the anthem will not change the world until it produces action. Till you show up at community meetings, till you participate from more than behind a TV screen in a football jersey, it'll just be a protest. You need to be a leader in activism and petitioning and and talking to local, local government officials, getting the support of politicians and community leaders, This is when it starts to really matter. Now that's football, which leads to issues of racial reconciliation. But similarly, I have a message for us today, church. And and, and let me pay attention, particularly right now, what I'm about to say. Church attendance will not change the world. We could, next Sunday, be 600, 700, 800, 1,000. We could start doing Cornerstone, 1030, 12 p.m., 3 p.m. in South End, Fenway, Brighton, and we could balloon and explode. And let me tell you confidently, that does, that, that does not ensure that we will start fulfilling the mission that we've been posting up. Our church attendance will not change the world. But what it can do, like a protest, and what it does do, which I'm happy to say, is that it acts as the catalyst, as the on-ramp, as the fuel, as the fire for the world to start to change. But mere attendance will not. This world will not necessarily get better in Jesus' name because more people than 300 and 350 showed up at Cornerstone Boston on a Sunday morning. So I have a message for all of us in the same way that I had a message for Colin. To the everyday congregant, those of you who are just coming and attending, you're committed here, or even just visiting, your church attendance will not change the world. The world will change in Jesus' name when each person sees it as their own responsibility as a follower and disciple of God to be the hands and feet of Jesus and commit to clothing the naked and feeding the hungry. Ministry leaders, core teams, campus leaders, campus small group leaders, young adult community group leaders in the house, ministry volunteers. You're facilitating, planning, guiding, leading, volunteering, serving will not change the world until we ourselves become catalytic leaders, moving and shepherding our groups into taking action and being a part of the solution to human suffering in Jesus' name. Leadership team, LT, your governance of this church 
will not change the world until the government of our local congregation starts orchestrating action in the primarily, pri- primary responsibility of Cornerstone to be doers of compassion, mercy, justice in Jesus' name. And most of all, Pastor Bill, Pastor Hojin, and if I had a big mirror, especially you, Pastor Danny, your preaching on compassion, mercy, and justice will not change the world unless you yourselves first lead your lives by example so that your sheep follow not only your voice but your footsteps. Do you hear that, Pastor Danny? The sheep are not just called to follow the voice, but the feet and the footsteps as well. And all of us in our own different ways have that responsibility. God expresses so often through his prophets in scripture, page after page after page, about how he doesn't long for more admirers and fans of his word, but doers of his word. That's what he's longing for from his church Not just about people gathering around in circles and showing up and filling auditoriums and church buildings. Not just for even, get this, even just memorizing. But people who memorize it so that we can start doing it and living by it. This is when the world starts transforming in amazing ways in Jesus' name. When the spark takes deep root inside of our heart and our souls, where we get fed by the word and our memorization of the word feeds us greater and and just marinates in our souls, which leads to our hands and feet moving. So today, in application, uh, you know, we're going to talk about this again in our vision component, and we'll have more, like, specific application and metrics on on what we are asking the church to do, but just since we're going to get that to, to, to that later, and, I, and since I just wanted to just give the simplest thing I could possibly say is let us go and be doers of the word, not just people who say go in peace, but people who actually go and clothe the naked and feed the hungry. And if you do not know where to start, I'm just going to post these places up for you to look at and write down. And I also uh, queued a post for our, our Cornerstone Facebook. It's going to have all these organizations along with a link going to their volunteer site. And I'm not necessarily saying we have to go here. This is, has to be your response of clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and doing something. You might have an organization that you like more and that you, or a cause that you're more connected with. But as I was praying this week, I was, I don't know, I got really humbled by God. He was like, your prayers are so puny, and they are. And so I, what I ended up changing in response to this, this, uh, this you know, voice or the Spirit's guiding was that, God, would you... Would organizations around here, would there be 300 more volunteers because of right now? That's my prayer. I'm not saying you have to sign your life away. I'm not saying that, I'm not, my prayer isn't that every one of you will be every week, multiple hours, forever, like, sign your life away. All, I'm, all my prayer was, it started off even smaller, was just as a result of Sunday, will there be 300 more people who did something? Because we love Christ Jesus and because we love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's, as a church, stop talking about our desire to love people in Jesus' name and let's start doing something about it. When we start talking about CMJ, compassion, mercy, and justice, right? 
a, what I would say is a, not the best place or the healthy place to start at, where I do, and maybe you guys do too, is thinking of them as the other. So, I need to volunteer at these places because those people are in need of my help or in need of somebody to help them. We think of them with the separation of like it's the homeless people or it's uh, people who are uh, unable to support their own families or people who are struggling with opioid addiction in Massachusetts or they're the faraway people who, who are being oppressed systematically because of their skin color and we kind of separate ourselves and push them far away to a distant group which is why I think is a lot the issue why a lot of us don't help because what we need to do at a much better starting point is realizing that we're in that group too. Just like a homeless person can literally do nothing to remedy their situation. They need somebody to be here. Let me pull you up. All of us in this room, we're so dead in our sins and bound to this one-way, unstoppable road to separation from God from eternity. You needed somebody to intervene and to do 100% of the work. God looked upon the sin of his children and had so much compassion that he went so far as to send Jesus to earth to walk on water, to preach, to die, to take punishment, to raise up again from the grave and to ascend into heaven. All of us were in the absolute deepest depths of our spiritual poverty and need. And because Christ Jesus had compassion on you, you're no longer in that situation. In fact, we have an abundance of riches, don't we? Aren't we blessed beyond we can beyond our, our like imagination or our, our, our understanding? In the way that God saw us in our broken state and helped us, he's saying, now that I did it for you, won't you go and do that for other people? We need to realize that we're in that same boat, friends. Jesus wants us to be like him in this world. And I know a lot of us want to be like him because I hear us. I hear us saying it. We talk about it. We pray about it. We say, Lord, make us more like your son. We say, Lord, make us more Christ-like. But if we really want to be more Christ-like, we have to start being more compassionate, don't we? Is not Christ's compassion one of the greatest gifts that all of us have ever received? And now it's for us to steward and to give. When we have received so much, can't we be sharers of that same gift? So as recipients, friends, all of us in this place, we're equal in that we're recipients of CMJ. So let us go and be doers of the same. Let's bow and pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much that when you saw the plight of humanity, you were moved. When you saw the depths of our sin, 
when you saw the end place that we were headed, you were so moved with love and compassion that you took great, great action. So Lord, I want to pray for our hearts and our minds that you would make them sensitive like yours so that when we see the suffering of a brother and sister, that we would be moved with compassion. And I also want to pray in the way that you took action with that compassion that moves inside of us like yours, then lead us to radical, sacrificial, compassionate living so that we can love people in the way that Jesus loved us. Lord, I pray for every person in this room that in one way or another you would lead us to finding that place where we can even, even make it intersect with our, our gifts, with our schedules even, with our, with our financial uh, bracket. We would use the situations and the blessings that you have given us to turn that around to not making it about us anymore, but making it about your glory and the blessing of your children. Remind us that we are not so far, but that we are brothers and sisters with people who suffer and were once there as well. And lead us to move. God, I confess, as <laughs> it's, 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 it's probably not a good thing for a, a shepherd of our church to be small in prayer. And so I repent of that first. And then I boldly pray that literally 300 or more organiza- or people would start to sign up and help and love people because Christ Jesus has loved them. We thank you for this time that you have given us and for the richness of your grace that washes us white as, white as snow. We take great delight in a God whose compassionate love is so, so rich. So we want to learn about that more. We want to see it clearer. We want to experience it in a number of new ways. And we pray that all those things would be the fuel to send us off to give that to other people. Take delight in the next songs that we sing and in the ways that we live our lives as we go forward. That as our brother James just implores us that we would not just be admirers or speakers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word. We commit this to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.